0: From the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia to around the globe, you're listening to Shark Bite Biz, your exclusive place for business strategy, sales, marketing, and tech in the roaring 20s. And now, here's your host, David Strausser. And you just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz, I'm your sometimes glamorous, sometimes rockstar host wannabe, I guess. And this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Nothing screams SEO like the title of this video. I'm sure you saw it. I'm sure you saw the podcast listening and you just had to click. Like, what the heck is this? I'm sorry. You know? I am trying to grow this podcast, so I had to take full advantage of our guest name. That aside, though, first, please remember, you can join the channel if you're watching us on YouTube for only three dollars a month. You can become a baby shark and get some pretty cool, awesome perks. But if giving money through big tech is not your thing don't worry we got you covered you can head on over to deadhousecoffee.com use code shark you're gonna get 20 percent off of your order and you're gonna get the freshest coffee available i mean this thing as soon as you order it it is roasted steeled and shipped within 24 hours to your house okay it can't get any fresher than that and it's zombie All you got to do, DeadHouseCoffee.com, use code SHARK, you will get 20% off of your order and all the proceeds directly support us producing the biggest and best show we possibly can. Now, let's get back to today's show because despite the Google-friendly or not so Google-friendly, you know, pending the search path you take. Because, again, you know, the name of our guest, this guy that I have on the show, he really does have an amazing story to share with us. Somebody that, again, just like many of our other guests, name aside, many of our other guests that just had that entrepreneurial calling, that business bug, I guess we can call it, and has started multiple successful businesses. What I think is really cool about this story is that it is SaaS-based. SaaS, again, is software as a service, basically renting, leasing software instead of outright buying your software. Again, everybody knows I work with Vision 33. We do SAP Business One and Sage Intact same kind of concept there i mean you can rent or you can buy your software and we talk about that more during this interview but i think our guest today was on the bleeding edge of all of that and really started a company that was perfectly situated for a remote world or what we're all going through right now with covid i mean sometimes you honestly you just get lucky but that luck only happens because of your hard work. So, who are we checking in on today? None other than Mr. Jeff Epstein. No, 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 okay, not that one. This one doesn't have an island and is very much alive. So, you're probably asking, okay, who is this island uh, Jeff Epstein? Uh, I'm so glad you asked. Mr. Jeff Epstein is a lifelong entrepreneur and has founded, run, and sold several businesses. His last business was Ambassador, getambassador.com, a B2B SaaS company which grew to nearly 50 employees before selling to Intrado in 2018. Jeff and a few colleagues from Ambassador have founded Onboard.io based on their experience of onboarding many Fortune 500 customers. Onboard solves a major pain for today's customer-driven organizations where there isn't many purpose-built software for the success department and Onboard is focus specifically on onboarding and implementation teams so hey why not let's hang around with mr epstein <laughs> see what i did there i promise that was the last pun no more we're done let's bring him it in here business strategy yeah welcome to shark bite biz you my friend you just became shark bait Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, no problem. No problem. So we got a tradition on the show. Very first question we ask you right out of the gate. It's a loaded one, man. I hope you're ready for this. Okay. What's your experience? What's your background? Where you've been? Where are you going? Tell us what makes Jeff Jeff?
1: So, yeah, it's a great, great question. Obviously, lots unpack, but uh, sort of a lifelong entrepreneur, started many companies, uh, some successful, wow. some flops, for sure. Um, but I guess uh, for, I, you know, I guess flops, I started. Uh, I'm sorry. What's Sorry. On?
0: So you said that you've had some flops, but were they really flops as far as you probably learned a lot from them? Flopping though of things not to do right yeah i, I I'd like to think so um first <laughs> company makes <laughs> you <laughs> to, feel better
1: <laughs> yeah but, you know the first one was in college uh it is actually online ordering from restaurants before all the big companies came out. I probably uh, should have executed a little bit better i I mean I learned that business was harder than an idea, maybe um because it was mm-hmm. a good idea, a little bit early um but after I went to law school, started another business in the poker space, uh, affiliate business, uh, which which did quite well, and led me to my uh, previous company called Ambassador, which was a, a marketing technology company, um, and it was a, a SaaS, and the, and that one did quite well, and and certainly learned a ton uh, in that space, and uh, ended up selling it in 2018, um, wow. and then afterwards started uh got to get got the band back together so to speak and started another business called onboard which was really based off all the lessons that we learned in terms of implementing customers uh on our marketing technology so this company is called onboard.io and uh it's been a lot of fun definitely a different lens this time around not uh scratching and clawing and living in my parents basement so that that makes it a lot better
0: right and it is a like a SaaS company that you're doing, so this would be kind of like your second SaaS company in a row, right? Yes,
1: exactly. Yep. I, I, I learned one of the, one of the things that I definitely learned was it's really nice to have recurring revenue, which you start right. to, you're seeing predictable, more predictable,
0: predictable recurring revenue because even if you lose one customer, yeah, it stinks. You lost a customer, but you have 99 more that are still paying the fee. So it's not going to kill your business overnight. The only thing that stinks, I think, for a SaaS business is when you're ramping up. It's a slower ramp up because if you were selling perpetual type licensing for your your business, you get that big bang satisfaction of a one-time payment, then you have your profitability right there. Whereas doing it through SaaS, I mean, I'm in the ERP world. With mm-hmm. us, it's probably about a 30 to 36 month uh, point to where it's like we make the same amount of money with SaaS as we would have if we sold perpetual license. So I don't know how it is in your world. Yeah, no,
1: it's, it's a really good point. It, it It certainly is, and and this time around as well, it's a much lower price point. So previously we were 10,000 or more per year annual commitment. Uh, With onboard, it's our average, our average customer is probably three or $400 at at most. And- and A year or a month? A month. Okay. And so it's, like you said, it's not big dollar amounts, but they, the nice part is they do stack up pretty quickly yeah. and they do tend to stay. I mean, again, it depends on the product, but in this case, what's been really exciting is the companies have stuck around. So we've had almost no churn over, and we've only been live for about six months, but we've had almost no companies okay. cancel, which is amazing.
0: Oh yeah, no, that 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 is totally amazing because churn, even for established companies like my main company, Vision Thirty Three. Now, you got to remember, our company went through a transition where, you know, know, everything used to be all perpetual. Only in the last few years, I think, has has really become fashionable the way because cash flow for companies, too. It's like, hey, do you want to spend $150,000 buying licenses and still then having to pay for support and maintenance? Or would you rather, you know, just pay for it and get upgrades, support, maintenance, all that wrapped into, you know, a $4,000 a month payment instead? And nowadays, especially during COVID, everybody wants that. So it's been a trend for us where perpetual is going down, but then SaaS is shooting out the roof and our churn rate for the first, um, I would say, year was pretty high. I mean, it was like 15 to 20%. And we were like, wow, okay, what are we doing wrong? How can we minimize that? And since then, I think we've got our turn down to lower than about 5%. And we have, you know, roughly 2000 plus customers. So that's pretty good. I think
1: that is really good. I mean, single digit annual churn is, is, is really, is really solid, you know, and if the, you know, what I found and what makes selling software challenging with churn is that at a certain point, the numbers get so large, if you're doing, let's say $10 million a year in revenue, mm-hmm. if you're losing two or $3 million a year in churn, then you have to sell five or 6 million to actually mm-hmm. grow. And so as, you know, sort of, with you know, as the numbers get larger, if the percentage churn stays constant, then you're just having to sell so many new customers. And that is such
0: an excellent excellent point because Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, if you're selling 10 and you lose 30% the churn, then you're down to 7 million a year revenue. And to actually have year over year growth you've got to sell 3 million right out of the gate in order to just to get where you were the year before.
1: Exactly. And, and for most companies,
0: that becomes a big
1: problem, you know, and you see a lot of companies grow to a couple million pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Again, obviously that's still really hard, but to get, you know, but then to get from 10 to hundred million in revenue, you mostly see these companies that become public they tend to have what's called like net negative churn, meaning they actually mm-hmm. have more upgrades than they do, you know, losses, so to speak. So, the, right. you know, even though people do end up likely churning out, the, their existing customers are sort of re- renewing for more or expanding mm-hmm. uh, the products or the purchases that they're making. And, and, you know, this is why we build Onboard, because we face that challenge specifically. And we knew really? that one of our biggest problems was, we didn't get customers onboarded, you know, as as well as we wanted to, and that we thought that was a big gap in, in in the software world, and so that's what you know, that's what Onboard is built yeah. for. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that yeah, that was what I was going to ask. You know, uh, being what we're we're talking about, uh, if you wanted to kind of give a high level overview as far as what Onboard.io is, so that way, I, I think. It adds value as far as giving context of what you do for the greater discussion, especially because then like the SaaS aspect of it or the turn of it kind of make more sense, uh, I think, if you kind of gave an overview. Sure. And yeah, so for context, you know, software, as you mentioned,
1: subscription software, especially is, you know, is a relatively new, you know you know, they're, they're relatively, it's a relatively new entry In the last, let's say, decade or so, you've seen an emergence of these software companies, obviously Salesforce being the, the big one, and then all these other Correct. companies filling in all of these gaps, you know, across all of the types of job functions that there are.
0: I, I and- think Salesforce, and there's another company that I think people overlook with SaaS, but I think SaaS really started, with Microsoft when it went mainstream for two things. One, Xbox Live, I think, was the first real SaaS type program, five bucks or whatever it was a month to get the Xbox Live service, where somebody like PlayStation at the time, I think, was even free. So it was there, but also once they pushed Office to where they were making it very, very hard to buy, um, and you could you know you can only get the SaAS version, you know, the nine, ten bucks a month, whatever it is. That's, I think really what pushed the, uh, it into the consumer lives, those two moves. but on the corporate side of things, I think it was again Microsoft with office, but also Salesforce that really drove. The the SaaS for your business as an actual model.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. And Microsoft has really changed the game with making it seemingly reasonable $10 a month for Office. Where I remember, you know, at least, you know, in years past thinking, oh, $200 for these software tools. That's really annoying. I mean, yeah. it's, it's way more annoying if you don't have three,
0: them. $400. Like, I mean, right. look at how much Adobe used to cost. Um, if you needed the the creative suite not even the creative suite just something like uh photoshop i mean hundreds and hundreds of dollars and now uh because you know my son's studying uh, at college he was able to get it for like 20 bucks a month i think a non-student discounted price is around 50 dollars a month uh, but that's still a lot more affordable than having to spend you know the the fifteen hundred dollars for the whole creative suite. absolutely. and
1: And what's nice too for them is is you know they're probably, like you said, even in your business, after thirty six months, it's all profit or or that's sort of the break even. I think these yeah. companies are seeing the same thing where they can deliver they don't need to maintain seventy versions of their software. They can maintain one sort of current version. And people always get the latest and greatest, so to speak. Yep. And they're continuously paying. So instead of you know having an old machine with, and then sort of copying your license across all your computers or your you know family what have you, mm-hmm. you can you know subscription software is certainly uh, makes that a lot I think a lot better for for all, really for all parties, uh, which is which is really nice.
0: What I really think is interesting, and this is a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but. Did you see how Microsoft launched their, not the Windows 365, but it's like the actual computers that, um, I I forget what it's called. I think it's, uh, maybe it is the Windows 365, but it's, you you can get a cloud computer, like desktop workstation for personal use or enterprise use not the greatest builds right now so it's not like you're going to get something with an rtx gaming card or something like that but i mean it's like hey all you need essentially is a chromebook that has an internet connection and you're just going to connect right here through the browser and bam you're at this super powerful workstation now and it's all SaaS. i mean that i think is the true power of SaaS. And the cloud, I had a VP, Nancy Sperry from Sage on this show, and her definition of the cloud was basically giving companies uh, in the small business, mom and pops, medium sized businesses, but giving them fortune 50 technology at a fraction of the cost. That's the power of SaaS and the power of the cloud. Yeah, and even
1: taking it a step further, and again, this is something that we saw with, specifically with COVID, is that the beauty uh-huh. of the cloud and web-based software is that you can do your job from anywhere, ideally, Oh, right? Yeah. And, and you can access you know, your files and tools in the in the cloud, right? Like you can right, access right. them from anywhere. Uh, assuming I don't know you if you
0: can tell, but I'm actually at the beach right now. Okay. So so am I. So am I. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh yeah, yeah, no, I think you're you're totally right, you know, and, and the cloud really enables businesses and people to work um, from anywhere. I have an article that should be coming out maybe in about five, six weeks uh, on forbes.com that is discussing the modern workplace and for working professionals. The nine to five is outdated. It's it's a deliverable based environment that is non-office centric, that is work where you please. Now, I think the big battle is, and we've seen a lot of articles about this coming out lately, is, okay, well, what about salaries? Uh, We were paying you X amount of dollars because you were based in New York. Now that you're not in New York City, you're not worth as much, so we're going to pay you less. I think that's the next battle and the next step of the frontier that uh, employees and employers have to work out with this. Virtual or hybrid work environment.
1: Yeah, that that is also a, a great point. And and you know, ultimately, I think what we'll see is, if I had to guess, um, as there's still quite a bit of demand. It's probably more demand than supply of knowledge workers. They're going right. to be able to demand a higher salary. And then as mm-hmm. you know, especially right now with the market the way it is, if 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 that you know the economy changes and and you know we go through slower times, I think you'll you'll see sort of a reversion back to, you know, probably lower salaries. But yeah, the 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 modern knowledge worker to me has a lot more leverage than ever before. And and yeah. I I mean I think that's a good thing. Um and the big and the best companies will raise enough money to pay for those folks and they really set the yep. tone. Um, and in the software world, that means whatever happens in California, everything filters down from the Valley and in yep. New York, right? And so if, mm-hmm. you, if you can't compete, then you try to find folks that are either, you know, in other parts of the country where they can maybe take a little bit less salary, maybe a little less qualified, potentially a little bit less of a resume, or you can look uh, at other parts of the world as well. So that's the beauty yep. of everyone can communicate in real time um, if needed, so.
0: Oh you know, yeah, definitely, so. definitely. So one of the questions that I have for you is, you know, we, we were kind of touching on this point a little bit earlier on, but churn, you know, customer service is a huge part of churn and having uh, no churn or minimizing your churn. What makes a great customer success team and you know how did you kind of go out and build one yeah and, and
1: to answer the question i mean one of the things that we spent a lot of time thinking about was as you mentioned you know for the last decade or so we've seen more and more software we've seen more and more tools available for people and for teams and you know personally i think my philosophy is a lot of software has become pretty commoditized meaning there's mm-hmm. lots of tools that do essentially the same thing. And the reason why me as a business owner, why I'm going to choose one software versus another software has to come down to some, you know, only a few key distinctions. And and they're not probably going to be features, right? Because anyone can build anything. So oftentimes I would also
0: say so look, okay, coming from the software world, I would say that there's one other thing in there that you're missing, and that is. It, it, okay, so in my world, you know, with SAP Business One, Sage Integ, we'll compete against uh Microsoft, we'll compete yeah. against Oracle with uh Net uh top-tier products. And it's true that they, you know, some things we might do better, some things they may do better, but it's mostly the same. I would like to say that one of the biggest differentiators um is also the sales rep as far as building the not just a sales rep, but all the experts that are around the sales rep that makes that success possible, it, because that's given the customer the warm and fuzzies to where it's like, okay, yeah, they're 10% more than NetSuite, but I really think David and his team is going to take care of us. I think we're going to be in better hands and that's how I I think he kind of separate the sell the deal there. Yep. Yeah. So
1: absolutely. And and so what I would call that and I agree is something like a customer-centric business, right? Where it's not just about, you know, we are we 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 built it and we know people will come, right? Like I think like right. like the modern tech software companies specifically they need to focus on what's best for the customer and it's it's also why you're seeing many of like business enterprise software working and and being delivered much like xbox live or other right consumer you know which selling to a consumer is actually much harder in many in many cases right it has to work mm-hmm. for every individual people maybe that aren't as savvy or don't so, you know, and this is not a philosophy that I've made up by any means, right? This is something that's been pretty, um, you know, written about for years now. It's really the consumerization of software, meaning that, um, you know, again, that software is going to be for enterprises and business users is going to be as easy as it would be for, you know, you know mom and pop, so to speak. And what's Oh, yeah, and- definitely. And taking that a step further, you're thinking, you know, we're thinking, well, the companies that are focusing on the customer outcomes the most are going to be the most successful. And then even taking that you know, one more step further, it's how, are you, how is your success department, how are you measuring them? How are you thinking about them as an integral part of your company? And I think for a right. long time, that everyone celebrated in technology, everyone celebrated the engineers, and then everyone celebrated the salespeople, and the rest of the folks were sort of the second class citizens in many companies. Right. And we're starting to sh- see a shift, in my opinion. And it's sort of the rise of the consumer of the of the, the customer-driven organization where these success teams are really becoming. Critically important to customer retention, as we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of churn, and therefore you keep your customers longer, companies become more profitable. So that, I think, is a new.: I,
0: paradigm. I totally agree with that. I, I, I agree with that. I think you've hit that on the head. With our company, for example, one of the ways that we started lowering our churn is we, thought, we found out that, um, hey, you know, customers feel like they're not getting the value from Vision 33. So in turn, what we did was you gotta remember when you're doing an ERP implementation, this is like a full body transplant. It is painful, it is frustrating, it is friction because you're doing this like if you're the customer, you have your normal, you know, day-to-day job that you've got to do. And then on top of that, you have to put in extra work to kind of help get this system built and tested to make sure that it works, which hopefully will make your job easier afterwards. But during that time period, it's hard. So what we ended up doing was like, we have a service excellency team and -hmm. that's what we use to train our our professional services consultants to teach them tricks, things like that. Things that can make it easier for the customer. And that way we're kind of like the pain medicine during that really painful process to try to make it as, you know, as painless as possible for them. And hopefully then when it's all said and done, you know, they're like, wow, you know, that was a lot of hard work. Thank God it's done. Wow. This is amazing. You know, they, they're blown away with how everything has turned out when it's over with that make sense yeah absolutely
1: absolutely and 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 even like sort of bringing this all you know tying it all together or putting a bow around all this that that's exactly why you know we're building onboard right it's like we want to provide the tools for those folks for the implementation folks for Mm -hmm. to give their clients visibility to work together collaboratively in a way that's actually made for them and Previously, what I would say is a lots of things would do eighty percent of the job, but they weren't built for those teams because, unfortunately, we weren't really celebrating the success and implementation departments. They were sort right. of like they were called the resources, which is something that I freaking hate. I hate when you yes. call people resources. It's like <laughs> no, they're people, and they're like making decisions. They're not like tools, right? Like the tools are right. software. Those are the those are the resources we should be talking about. Um, oh, absolutely! I fundamentally hate that.
0: Absolutely agree. And in fact, you have set yourself up for probably the most perfect follow-up question ever. So, how do you build and perfect your onboarding process? So
1: it really comes down to thinking about the entire journey and the the and the experience that you want your client to have. You know, and I think lots of times you. Companies only think about what has to be done, and that's certainly a big part of it. But there's communication. There's all the folks that need to be trained or need to be need to see documentation that need to exchange like information and and again documents. Um, and ideally, you know there needs to also be a a clear line of communication from the success department, from the sales team, you know, so Uh there's internal things that have to be done and hopefully streamlined and of course um, efficient, but then there's also the direct communication with, with the end users. And, you know, again, in our case, we found if you can put all the information in a place where both parties can see everything, there's full visibility, there's full transparency, That inherently creates accountability, right? When everyone knows what
0: everyone's transparency is important. Very important. Yeah. And that's one thing that uh, you know, my sales reps, because I I, the general manager, they'll pull me in at the end, usually at the end, kind of to give the customer the warm and fuzzies to get the deal over the finish line. And that's where I go through our implementation methodology. But Also, a part of that, I tell them, like, hey, look, we have a very transparent process. We are probably one of the most transparent companies you will find. Because, for example, our five steps of implementation, we can't move from one step to the next step unless you physically sign off through a docuside, you know, saying that you agree with us and Mm -hmm. this is complete and now we can go to the next phase but also even for your hours build, I mean, we do like a weekly milestone report for them. They have access to see how many and any time, how many hours were used, what they were used for, how the overall timeline and budget for the project is. And that's a lot of the stuff we focus on to really help minimize our churn. And it's helped us a lot. It's also helped us to get new sales because, Once we explain all of that, they're like, oh, wow, you know, none of the competitors told us that stuff and it's helped us win new business as well. So it's pretty cool. And that's why I want, sorry, I wanted to jump in there with that transparency because I think that is something that is sometimes overlooked and that's a huge value add to a lot of people. Huge value add. And it's funny you
1: mentioned that we also at our previous company learned that transparent onboarding process is actually a huge sales driver. And so our right. sales reps would actually say, this is what your onboarding is going to look like. This is who you're going to be working with most likely based on the industry. We knew that. And it was a huge like you said, it was, and not only was it uh incredibly valuable, it also sort of set the table and set the expectation of how things were going to go. And then right. like anything else in life, if you can exceed expectations, then you're off to a great start, right? And, yes. and I think what often happens is you have sales reps promising the world, and then you have the success team set up to fail with an implementation right. that can never be done on, on, you know, on time or on, on budget because right. you know, they, you're, you're over-promising and under-delivering. And with right, transparency, right. you don't have to do that. And I think, uh, you know, That's exactly setting, why,
0: why they bring me in to the finish of the deal because ultimately it's my head on the chopping block to make sure that this customer gets up live running uh, on time, on budget, hopefully under t- you know under budget mm-hmm. and faster, but it's my job, my my head. So I'm not going to be the yes man that you would expect that the sales rep is. And that's also why we have a very clear line divided by, okay, you're the sales rep. But you're not pre-sales. So the technical questions, you even though you know the answers, you know, you want pre-sales to do it, or you want your other subject matter experts to do it, because if they hear it from the sales guy, you're just going to be that you know, the yes, 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 we could do it. They're going to trust it from those trusted advisors more than just the sales rep. And that's something that we reinforce and really has given us a lot of success. In the sales world,
1: makes sense. I mean, it really is. It, you know, again, the more collaboration between the you know all sort of parties involved, the, the better it's going to be. Like you said, and and ultimately, um, you know, allowing this success and implementation folks to sort of drive home the you know the both the transparency, but also you know the the r- sort of the right answers at the right times. I and mean, those are those are really important parts. And again it builds the relationship which continues companies you know be you know being satisfied with the results and then ultimately again coming back and hopefully you know renewing for for years to come
0: right 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 so you know we do only have a couple more minutes left and i think there is one question that i would really Like to ask you. And when you said this during your introduction, I kind of called you out on it right then and there as far Mm -hmm. as having the flops and if you've learned from that. But, you know, hindsight is 2020, as the saying goes. So, what kind of lessons have you learned really going into your second, not only your second startup? but your second SaaS startup right off the bat.
1: Yeah, the biggest lessons for me is, as a, as a founder, you, you really, there, there, no, there's nothing, there's no substitute for sort of doing the work, in my opinion. A um, Lots of people wanna be a business owner and they think it's a glamorous job or that it means that you get to <laughs> not have to do anything. You can tell people what to do. The reality yeah. is, you should in the beginning, and it doesn't. I, this isn't. This doesn't last forever. Uh, but until the company, until the business is sort of stood up, or the product is stood up, you probably need to be, know the most about everything. And and that's going to change. Um, and when it does, it becomes a business, which I would consider, you know, bigger than a product. And then when it be, you know, after it becomes a business and it sort of can stand up as a business, and maybe you're making some money, then you become a company. And and all of those stages are very different. And as right. when it, you become a company, uh, you really become a, a leader of people and you become in many cases, much less a, you know, a, a builder of a product. You know, I think you can, maybe you can wear multiple hats, but um, you know, managing people is very different in a very different experience than I expected when I thought, oh, I'm going to like build a cool tech company, right? Um, ultimately, your job is to set a vision and a culture and and make sure that everybody's sort of rowing in the same direction. And, and if that yeah. doesn't work and it's not easy to do, uh, things can fall apart pretty quickly. And um, those are things I never really thought about. And you And I think the best founders learn quickly. Like you're gonna make mistakes for sure. Um, and ideally, you don't make the same mistakes twice. And I like saving, but make with the mistakes.
0: mistakes too. I think one thing that's important to point out is you're going to make mistakes. Everybody knows that. Hopefully, you don't make it twice, like you were just saying. But also, don't dwell on the mistakes. That's one thing that I see. You know, a lot of business leaders out there. You know, they're sad because they lost a deal two weeks ago. I mean, if I lost a huge deal or lost a huge customer, it's going to hurt me for the rest of that day. I'll probably, you know, drink myself to sleep that night. But once I wake up the next morning, like it's gone, it's over. I mean, you, you, you cannot dwell on things that have happened. Spend your energy on things that you can change and make better and learn from it
1: yeah that that's a great point and i certainly that was a hard lesson for me to learn i think i i like to i like to dwell on things and and -hmm. i think one thing that i was good at and i think the combination these two things are really powerful is is actually moving very quickly and that includes making quick decisions especially when they're reversible and so I, i can't remember when i read this um but I read something about you know great leaders make quick decisions. And I fundamentally believe that, especially for small things, like you don't want people and teams waiting on you um, mm-hmm. to, to, to answer a question, right? If you're a bottleneck, like that's the worst thing that can happen. And I also no, found this interesting, and this is, I believe it's related, is that I've had the benefit of randomly through a cold email, some email introductions, but I've emailed with... a couple different billionaires just through like connections of investors or like I even cold emailed Mark Cuban, for example, like many years ago. And it was amazing how quickly they responded like minutes later, right? And you'd think these are the most busiest people in the world, Uh, some of the most busiest people in the world, like how would they be able to answer this cold email or this introduction? And I think it's because they probably... They probably make a decision so quick, in this case, to respond to an email. And if they don't respond within five minutes, they probably never respond, right? Like, I I would imagine that they're just... Or they have a lot of
0: assistance. Maybe, but I mean, these are, (laughs) you know, these are, I think, are
1: direct. And I've I've heard this from, like, many people. And, And I've seen this type of behavior across other tech companies that I've worked with, where, you know, especially if you're dealing with CEOs or founders um listen oftentimes they're so busy and they like you said they may have m- many assistants but I think when they are going to make a decision it's very quick it's to the point it's not a paragraph right it's like a two word answer but it's okay this check the box right. move on right
0: right right yeah and and that's something that I can kind of agree with too because it seems like when you get to people that are that level it's either they're in they're sold or they're not if they're wishy-washy about it chances are they're just going to say no and move on not for them every now and then maybe they're wishy-washy but he's like you know i got a gut feeling about this though let me follow the gut and you know even though the brain's saying no and maybe it'll fall on your side but i i think that rule that that you said uh is probably Probably good advice right there. Yeah.
1: And and it's it served me well. I think again, like you don't want to be reckless, but you want to, but you need to move fast, right? Like there's always more to do than you can accomplish in a day, in, in a week, in yeah. a month, right? In a year. Um, but you have to stack up you have to stack up small successes. You know, it's it's a lot like small customers, right? Like you got to stack mm-hmm. them up. And, you know, if you consider like a big mistake is sort of like churn, like you don't want to have a lot of churn, right? So hopefully you just stack up a bunch of good outcomes and then you have a great outcome. And, and it's, and and I think that when you're starting a business, you know, you want it, you want to be perfect, but the reality is you don't even know what perfect is most, most likely. So you just have to do pretty well and keep pushing forward. And, and, you know, in, in many cases, if you can afford to sort of Outlast, you know everybody else. Like you'll be okay, you know. And that's yeah. uh, again, it's, it, every business is different, right? But in the software business, especially with recurring revenue, like you sort of mm-hmm. know what's coming in the door. So you know, then and the internet's always open, and you can sell to the world. So you have so many advantages than you know. Let's say like a brick and mortar, you know, you know location where you only have so many people that can potentially walk by a given day. So you have a lot of advantages in the tech world, and, and specifically. Mm-hmm. S- you know SaaS, so yeah
0: i definitely think SaaS is the future i think it's the the hot industry um the only fear i have is that at some point in the future uh i don't think within the next year but maybe it's five or ten years down the road people are subscriptioned out i mean look at television right now you have subscription fatigue because at first things like sling and stuff like that were oh my god these are cool alternatives 20 bucks a month now the way that you have everything a la carte you have uh Hulu, you got Netflix, you have Apple TV Plus, you have all these different things. And I just literally Disney Plus or whatever it's called, you know, Hmm. and we don't have cable at the house, but we ended up getting YouTube TV, which uh, honestly, for me, it kind of um, blew my mind because I was like, why couldn't cable or even Verizon that uses fiber optics? Why could they have not done what YouTube did with YouTube TV, it seems like the natural evolution of how things should have been, but whatever, that's another story, you know, but you see it in this marketplace where, you know, people, a lot of times, me included, I'm spending more with the a la carte channels right now than Mm -hmm. I was with our previous TV subscription. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is going to be a point in time you know, a couple maybe, again, maybe five, 10 years out, where people are just going to be like, stop with the subscriptions. What do you think about that? You know, mid-long term. Is that something you think's possible that we go back to a perpetual world? What's your what's your take? Yeah, I so I actually
1: I agree with what you're subscribing. I, I would I would explain it a little bit differently in terms of mm-hmm it's sort of like a great unbundling of these conglomerates, right? Like the cable companies had a stagnant, relatively stagnant product. didn't innovate as well as Hulu or Disney. It didn't have maybe good enough original content or whatever the gaps were, right? So people were cutting the cord, but then ironically, like you said, subscribing, still subscribing to all these other services that may even exceed the cost of what they originally unbundled or, you know, originally had bundled. And so... I mean, to me, I actually see, I agree with you in terms of again thinking about the software, specifically the software space, is I think what we're going to see is more and more specific solutions for individual departments. Right. So instead of a sales force, which they try to sell to everybody, right? Uh-huh. Like we have, you know, a a a tool specifically for you know, customer outreach, we have a tool specifically for CRM, we have a tool specifically for customer onboarding and implementation, and maybe a support ticketing service. So I I actually, I think this is actually the route that we're going is because, you know, purpose built software is just so much better than shoehorning a team into something that wasn't made for them. And I think that's what we've seen for so long is, you know, unless you're a dev, or a salesperson, you're getting pushed into whatever the dev or salespeople wanted to buy, and you're like, right. "Hey, I don't want to use that. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't understand me." And that's that's what we're trying to, to, you know, that's how we. And and the reason why we thought about that is because my co-founder was the head of success. I always sort of tried to stand up for the success team because I realized it's actually a really hard job. You don't get the big commissions of the salespeople. You don't get sort of the glory of the of, of the engineers. You get sort of a lot of like the yelled at and argued against and complained to, it's a really tough job. And and you know, I don't think they get enough credit. And like you said, they're the ones who are really setting the expectations and really managing the customer relationship. They're
0: on the front line.
1: Front lines for sure. And so I think we're going to see a lot of tooling for them. And I agree with you, they're not going to be connected to the big conglomerates. I think they're going to be new companies that are thinking about them and not worried about The engineering piece or the you know the sales
0: pieces the only bad part with with what you're saying and this is something that i see many companies coming to us today is they have data silos then because they have these niche programs and they need something to tie it all together and that's where my erp comes in because then we become the heart soul, the brain of your business, and you just plug and play with all these different pieces into it to process that data, raw data, and give you your analytics and your business intelligence. But hey, this has been amazing. I want to ask you, where can people digitally stalk you online? Yes, yeah, so
1: uh, Twitter at Jeff underscore Epstein, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, my company Onboard is onboard.io, if you want to check us out. Um, so one of those places you can certainly find me is and uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm excited to talk to anyone who's interested.
0: Yeah, a very easily uh, Google name, it uh, (laughs) you know, it'll populate itself right there for you.
1: Yeah, go down a couple pages though, okay?
0: (laughs) Yeah, a couple (laughs) pages, exactly, exactly. But Jeff, hey, this has been amazing. I hope you had fun, man. I did.
1: Thanks, David. That was really great. And uh, no, I I love your takes because I think, again, they're uh, you're right right on and, and agree totally with the integration pieces of of connectivity of, of software yep. tools. They need they need to sort of live yep. in one home ultimately at the yep. end of the day, in terms of like yep. analytics-wise.
0: Yeah. So you uh your company's been alive for about six months. Uh let's get you back on next year to do a year check-in and let's see if that churn rate is still zero. That'd be awesome. Would love to do
1: it. Absolutely.
0: Uh, awesome thanks, Jeff. Take care. Thanks. Wow, that was such an awesome chat with Jeff, right? First. You all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor: hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out, okay, Shark Bite Biz is the best kept secret out there in the world of business. Share this video out, share this audio podcast out, share it to your networks, your friends, your colleagues. You know, anybody that you think that would get value. Off of hearing such an awesome story from somebody like Jeff Epstein. I would love nothing more than onboard.io and Shark Bite Biz out there trending. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, Jeff Epstein. Like I said during the intro, Jeff has been in the front of the, I guess you could say, the, the bleeding edge technological curve. Uh, and I think during the Great Recession, like a little bit over a decade ago or whatever it was, companies like Salesforce were very successful because they allowed companies to get as Instead of having to, to do a big, huge, large, one-time payment for software, you were able to pay for it monthly. You could resize, you know, oh, um. You don't know how your business is going to be in a year because of the economy tanked. Um, no problem. Once a year you can downsize or upsize your licenses. They allowed flexibility, like in a way that's never really been seen before. I mean, Microsoft, SAP, Sage, a lot of the big major ERP players weren't actually allowing that type of flexibility and you know salesforce was a disruptor they did it they did it with SaaS payments and it worked very well now why that helped in the enterprise space in the small to mid-sized business world it did take a few more years to really catch on and move to be i think a daily part of our lives to be honest jeff you know between getambassador.com and onboard.io has really been, again, ahead of that curve, and that's pretty cool. Honestly, one day, I'd really love to be able to be ahead of that curve myself like he has been. Timing is everything in business, and especially with something like onboard.io. I mean, I think he's hit the nail on the head. You couldn't ask better timing than what he has right now so again you know right now we're onboarding customers everybody's onboarding customers if you know you're doing the right thing and actually closing deals yeah but if you're a professional services organization like myself with vision 33 You are probably mostly onboarding customers remotely right now. It's probably on-site type visits as minimal as possible. And while my organization has been doing that for many, many, many years, onboarding clients remotely and doing it successfully, that is not the case for many companies out there. During COVID, that, that was really highlighted as many businesses struggled with oh okay i sold this deal uh now what we can't go on site we can't do this we can't do that what do we do how do we onboard how how do we you know i view that professional service companies they're selling contracts that are essentially growth partnerships i mean yeah, you're selling a service, but your your job is to help them grow in some way, shape, or form. Mine is through business processes, for example. And you have to be able to kind of give them that value. But two of the core components is trust and transparency. And without trust and transparency, you're going to have a failed relationship. and. That's where it comes back to onboarding clients and having something in place that gives that trust and transparency from the get-go is critical for success. And I think, you know, looking back during this pandemic, something like COVID probably gave a huge shot in the arm to a company like Onboard dot io because i think a lot of people understood the value of a company like onboarding clients using that service um but look at things like zoom look at teams look at skype or whatever software solution like that you want to talk about all that existed pre-COVID okay they were there but they weren't a big part of our everyday lives okay We weren't uh, attached to the hip to Microsoft Teams like we are right now. Some companies were, maybe they use Slack, but not with the video calls and stuff like that to the degree that we're doing right now. Even things like Slack have transformed during COVID. People just didn't know how to get the right value out of them. Right now, during COVID, though, I think people have finally seen the value. They've understood the value. It has been unlocked. And using these types of programs are actually critical for success. So hearing Jeff's story and how companies are leveraging things like his software, especially in places that are customer centric organizations, because it's been a real fundamental shift in how we operate right now, current day in 2021. Okay, it's been amazing. I love hearing this story. This is an amazing story, Jeff. Hey, and thank you for letting me take some jabs with the name and then having some fun. Really appreciated you coming on. Again, love chatting with you. Please make sure you check out Onboard.io. Question of the day. How do you onboard customers pre-COVID versus right now? Leave a comment down below on YouTube or on your uh, podcast network. Do you want to be on the show? Real simple solution. Send out an email. Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Please don't forget you can join the channel for only $3 a month. You can become a baby shark right here on YouTube. Or if giving money through big tech, you don't want to do that, get the freshest coffee available. I'm telling you, it is uh, roasted, sealed, and shipped all within 24 hours. Two-year doorstep. Use keyword shark. You will save 20% off of your order only at DeadHouseCoffee.com. You all know this by now, but I'm David Strasser. This is Shark By Biz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers.